Hello, everyone. Welcome along to the Event Industry News podcast. My name is James Dixon, wishing you a very good morning, afternoon or evening, wherever or whenever you may be tuning into us from. Today's podcast is brought to you by our sponsor, Engage, powered by D2i Systems, winner of Best Event Management Platform at the 2017 Event Technology Awards. To learn how Engage can make your business more profitable, visit www.d2isystems.com forward slash engage on with today's episode and the subject of gdpr is somewhat of a hot topic at the moment in the event industry gdpr will come into effect on the 25th of may this year it will uh, bring to an end the data protection act dpa i think it is but our guests today will offer a far more detailed insight into the whole subject than i could possibly offer i'm here to ask the simple questions and our guest today is henry herbert Henry is from Herbert and Ball LLP. He is a data protection consultant, a former solicitor, and somebody who has very much spent the last few months embedded in this particular subject, looking at it in a lot of detail, and is well positioned to answer any of the questions that we want to put to him. Henry, thanks very much for joining the podcast. Thanks very much, James. Um, so, this, this subject of GDPR, um, the event industry, I wouldn't say is, is in a mass panic about it, but uh, given the size of the industry, this, the amount of data that it relies on to go about its day-to-day activities, as we approach that key date of the 25th of May, inevitably people are starting to become growingly concerned about it and asking the question, well, what does it mean and what do I have to do? So let me put those questions to you. What does it mean and what do they have to do? Sure. Well, there's a lot to do. I mean, from a, from a business perspective, you know, most businesses will have a set list of requirements that will apply to all businesses and therefore affect them. So that'll be things like updating your website documents, um, putting in place internal records of processing, um, sorting out your data processes, doing an audit to data map where all your data is going and where it's being stored. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, auditing suppliers in particular, that's, that's a big part of it. Data processes, um, so you know, your IT providers, thing, things like that, email provider, making sure they're compliant. And then you've obviously got events industry specific points. Um, which relate to how data is shared in the events industry. So, for example, when an organiser shares data with exhibitors or with suppliers, um, those those sort of relationships need to be examined very carefully. But I mean, really what you're doing is working out where the data is going, making sure you've got a legal basis for processing it and making sure that wherever it goes, it's, it's ending up in a compliant place. Um, I have, in one of uh, life's strange twists, actually prepared some questions for today's podcast, which is, uh, which is something that's sort of an unknown for me, for people who watch it regularly. But um, I felt that given your expertise, we should have a little bit of guidance on there and, and a few key areas to look at. Um, one thing that I wanted to start off with was asking what constitutes personal data, because this is a key aspect of GDPR. I've read that it's about putting the consumers back in control of their own data. So what constitutes personal data and what specific elements are we going to have to look out for? Yeah, absolutely. Well, the first thing to say, I think, is it's not just consumer data. It's very much also potentially B2B data. Uh, What personal data is, without getting too far into the lengthy legal definition, is basically data that relates to an individual, which can be used to identify them on its own or in combination with other data. So it will include all the usual stuff that people would automatically assume is personal data, like names, email addresses with their name in it, uh, phone numbers, such as mobile, 
um, but it also is a lot broader, you know, explicitly by the GDPR, which is uh, potentially cookies and IP addresses and things like that. Right. Um, but from a from an events industry perspective, I think the main concern will still be the traditional, you know, undisputed personal data, which is names and email addresses, but the contact details, things like that. Uh, and when we identify those two key things, names and email addresses, this is stuff that is, in some respects, the bedrock of the industry. Um, regardless of the type of event that people are running or hosting, names and email addresses are, in some ways, absolutely critical um, to the operations of these. Um, I, I would guess that in the last few months, you've had panicking event organizers come to you and say well how will i run my business if i if i don't have the names and email addresses of my customers presumably there's an answer to that and one that does allow people to keep those details yeah absolutely i mean the, the real issue is working out what types of data you've got so you'll have names and email addresses but you'll have them for a range of different purposes you know you'll have names and email addresses from suppliers uh, from customers uh, contacts um, and other you know mailing lists things like that so the, per the, the actual type of data will largely be the same, but the purpose for which you're processing it will be very different. So if you're supplying goods or services to someone, generally the legal basis will be a contract. You need those details to be, to be able to perform the contract with them. Mm -hmm. uh, email marketing is slightly different. Uh, for individuals, you, you will generally be relying on consent unless you're using something called the soft opt-in, which is relatively rare. Um, depending on whether you've got company data, you might be relying on legitimate interests. So, so what you need to do is assess various different types of data you've got while you're using it and then establish what legal basis you're going to rely on. Most of the data, apart from marketing data, as long as you've got a, a, a real reason for using it, you'll be able to find a reason to use it, uh, you know, keeping in touch with customers, things like that. Uh, for legal purposes, keeping things to protect against legal claims, for example, if someone buys something from you. You need a record of that purchase but mm. the hard part is going through and making sure you get the right legal basis and when you say legal basis does, does that mean um uh the actual obtaining consent what, what do we mean by legal basis for that data yeah so legal basis is, is essentially the grounds on which you're processing the data now there are six main ones for regular personal data but in reality there's four that are relevant to a business most of the time and that will be consent, mm -hmm. which is obviously everyone's talking about that. Legitimate interests is another one. Um, necessity for performing a contract is the third. And then pursuant to a legal obligation is, is the fourth. Um, this is a little bit more complicated when you delve into exactly how they work. But those are the sort of basic four that I would expect most businesses would be relying on. There are other ones like protecting the vital interests of someone, but that's relatively rare. And, and when one of the words you mentioned there is necessity. Um, when we say necessity, does, does that mean that, that an organiser would have to identify whether or not obtaining any particular type of information is necessary to the operations of their business? Uh, how do we term what, when necessity falls into it? So necessity is specifically for, um, it's actually for both legitimate interest and, and a contract. So it's got to be necessary for, the, for those legitimate interests. So for example, if you have a, a sole trader that you're doing business with, it's necessary to have his name so you know who you're contracting with, for mm -hmm. example, for the invoice. Um, it might not be necessary to have it for other purposes. Uh, I mean, for example, marketing, you don't, you don't need to use his email address for marketing to perform the contract. That's a, that's a separate point that generally um, you would rely on a different purpose such as legitimate interest or consent for depending on 
as I say, how he signed up and how you obtained his email address. So, for example, you couldn't make it a condition of a contract that someone consents to marketing or that you can send them marketing. Uh, for an individual, that won't work because you need consent under a separate law, which I'll go into a bit later, called the PCR, to send marketing communication to, to individuals. Uh, how does it work in the scenario where somebody enters into a contract where it's not necessary for you to have their email address included as part of that agreement or contract, but they want that actual contract or agreement emailed to them? Sure. So then you would generally, I think, rely on legitimate interest. So you would have a legitimate interest in emailing the contract to them as a convenient way of, of doing business with them. I, you know, it would be obviously a lot more expensive to post it, for example. Mm-hmm. So you would say it's necessary for your legitimate interests of something like increasing business efficiency, you know, yeah. or ensuring the smooth running of the business. So you generally legitimate interest and contract will work together. Sure. And we always try to recommend that you use both um, in conjunction, because if one fails, you've then still got another legal basis to rely on if for whatever reason you're challenged. I see. And, and, and I suppose some of these initial questions are not just relevant to the events industry. What, what they're relevant to is, is, is any business that's operating because um, further to what we've just asked about email addresses and, and actually sending something out to people, does GDPR cover the fact that um, on most of our computers now, when I launch a new email and I start typing somebody's name, I've got email at thousands of email addresses saved in my previous recipients um, folder in my laptop. So it will automatically recognize somebody's email address as I'm typing it and autofill that into the, 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 the two box or the CC box, you know, the, will businesses and, and I suppose in the events industry, specifically events businesses have to take into account elements like that where they've got information stored on, on computers. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the autofill function that you're referring to is there's nothing inherently wrong with that. That's fine. The issue will be if you've got emails in there that you haven't got a legal basis for processing. So, for example, if you've had an inquiry uh, that you resolved and you know, someone asked you the price and you said it was £100 to buy this item and they said, OK, thanks, not interested. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've then got to work out, well, why have I got that data um, after they said they're not interested in the product? What, what legal basis do I have for keeping that? So a lot of people, I mean, this is a typical example where you'll do a data cleansing exercise to work out what data you've got a legal basis for keeping. For example, existing customers that went ahead and purchased, um, generally you can keep it for up to seven years um, for, for legal purposes mm-hmm. in, the, in the sense that if there's a contractual dispute, you need to know obviously who you're contracting with. And then VAT invoices, you need to keep those for, for six years mm-hmm. under, under the VAT Act. So so that's the hard part is working out whether you've got the legal basis the actual storage of the data which you refer to is is a separate issue uh, where you'll need to ensure that wherever it's stored either by you or your data processor that 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 it's stored compliantly and it's sufficiently secure so you'll need to make sure without going into too much about the technical security measures that depending on the risk of the data and i think b2b data is generally a little bit less risky than someone's email address which they probably use to sign up on lots of websites Um, that you've got appropriate technical and organizational measures in place to protect it. 
Um, you, you, you mentioned the phrase data cleansing, and, and, I, and I'm going to tie that in um, a little bit with something else you mentioned at the start of today's episode, which was uh, the word audit was mentioned. And the word audit I've seen crop up in a number of, of, of guidance documents and things that I've read online in the last few months relating to GDPR about companies and businesses conducting an audit of their current processes and, and current data. Um, what are we talking about when it comes to doing an audit? You know, if, if, if you instructed or advised a client of yours to, to conduct an audit of it, what would that actually mean and what would they need to do? Sure. So what we tend to do is we have an audit questionnaire that we would send out, which asks a very large number of questions about that business and what they do with the data. The idea being that it will ask you who your third party processes are, where the data is stored, specific questions about your technical security, Mm -hmm. the sorts of data you hold. So essentially it will force the client to work through in a systematic way all of the various places where their data could be stored right. and, and then come back with a set of responses. We would then assess that and give recommendations in a sort of prioritized order in terms of at this point, obviously with two months to go, what is the key stuff you need to, you need to put in place straight away and what if needs be could be potentially delayed slightly if resource is an issue. And then after that, they would then be either uh, they would either implement some of the recommendations themselves, or we would we would do it in conjunction with an on-site audit where we look at their systems, depending on any highlighted risks, and depending on how much they want to do, and and they prefer to get a consultant on board to sort it out. I see. Now, now, you've already mentioned the term legitimate interest, which was was one of the other questions that I was going to ask. So it, it, it's looking to me already like a, a lot of the the areas of interest and 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 the sort of the the individual um, sections that, that GDPR could be split down into all inherently tie back into one another. Um, and when specifically when we look at consent. Um, I know a lot of the guidance that I've read in advance, um, whether it's true or not, you know, focuses quite heavily on the consent that you're getting from somebody when you're obtaining their data. Um, now, this is where it starts tying in specifically with the event industry, because the most common form of data capture that happens in the event industry is when somebody registers for an event. So you want to attend a trade show or a conference or a consumer event. The very first thing that you have to do before you part with any other sort of information or monies is register your details, your name, your email address, where you work, et cetera, et cetera. Um, what are we going to have to do as an industry to start making sure that we're complying with new regulations when it comes to obtaining the data and obtaining somebody's consent to capture that data? Sure. Well, it will depend slightly on the circumstances, but I think if you've got someone registering to attend an event as, as a visitor, generally you would either be relying on uh, legitimate interests in order to store their data, hence so you know how many people are attending the event and you can mm -hmm. uh, you know who's coming, uh, or potentially contract depending on it, although that may be less likely if you haven't actually put a specific contract in place with the individual. Uh, then the, the other part to it is whether or not you want to market to that person. Now, as I was sort of alluding to earlier, it's not necessary um, to put, for them to attend the event that they receive marketing. So what, what you can't do is put in a contract that by signing up, you agree to receive marketing communications from us. Uh, that, that will not work because for individuals, at least, uh, it, it will not be a valid consent. Under GDPR, it's got to be truly freely given and unbundled from any other obligations. So you can't make signing up for marketing conditional on on something else on, on you know attending an event 
I see. Which is typically typically being the case, as you'll know online, you'll often provide your email address in exchange for downloadable content. Well, that's not actually necessary. You could just click download and get a free ebook, you see. There's no actual reason to collect an email address. And that also ties in with the general principles of, of GDPR and the Data Protection Act at the moment, which is that you shouldn't collect any more data than is necessary. I see. So in some respects, GDPR is, is taking what we've had with the Data Protection Act, but I, I get the sense that what, what it's doing is, is tightening up any ambiguity that may have been in the DPA it, it, when it was written, I suppose, not taking into account the amount of digital data that's now collected. Yeah, absolutely. And they actually, for consent, they use the word unambiguous. So you're absolutely right. So it is, it is about dealing with amb- ambiguity to some extent. Yes. Um, uh, one, one scenario that I thought might be worth sort of presenting to you and, and, and w- will potentially affect uh, many event organisers out there is, is the use of, of ticketing agencies. Because um, when we think about the major ticketing agencies that operate within the event industry when it comes to, to buying concert tickets, for example, um, mm-hmm. you will buy concert tickets for your favourite artist at your favourite arena and what will happen then is uh, a couple of days or even a couple of minutes after you bought those tickets you'll get an email advertising a load of other artists that they think you might like to go and see um, at other events uh, or, or other venues. Um, how will it affect in, in a ticketing scenario companies like that who capture your data and then profile it to see who you may be interested in, in going to see and buying tickets for in future? Very good question. Uh, the short answer is, in terms of sending you marketing, if, if you're an individual and you sign up to a concert, uh, they won't be able to do that unless they've either got consent or they've relied on the soft opt-in. So giving you the chance to opt out. Mm-hmm. So, and they have to have been in negotiations for sale for similar goods and services, which is conceivable that they could do in that circumstance. But having said that, uh, the soft opt-in is a little bit risky for a number of reasons, but and people will also be expecting to see, I think, unticked boxes going forward. So from a, a best practice perspective, we suggest consent is probably the thing to go for and therefore have an unticked box saying, tick here if you'd like to receive you know, offers or, or news about other uh, concert artists that are performing. Mm-hmm. Uh, then there's the issue of profiling, which... Is a, is a rather more complex one and depends on how basically invasive it is. Uh, it's possible that you can do some profiling without consent. But again, I think after the Cambridge Analytica uh, that's been in the news, mm. people, people will generally expect organisations to be much more transparent about the extent and level of profiling that's going on and generally seek their consent. Um, I, I, I'm... I'm... I'm going to refer to an example slightly loosely, and, and, I, and I won't won't name names in case I get some of the specific details wrong, but one of the major streaming platforms, music streaming platforms, um, I, I, was, I was told about 18 months ago that they were working with some of the major musical artists but, uh, on a method that would allow the artists and their record companies to see which users of that particular streaming platform were listening to their artist and to profile the ones who were listening it to it the most times, therefore being able to direct them to ticket buying platforms and being able to target tickets for concerts by that particular artist by looking at their activity online and looking at how often they've, they've listened to that particular artist. Um, again, w- when you look at things like that, is GDPR going to cover things like streaming services whereby there is some personal data there and it could potentially be used to target specifically at that level? 
Yes, absolutely. Um, I mean, the main thing, and I, I'm thinking more sort of Facebook, but that is similar to the, the sort of uh, profiling that GDPR is, is talking about. You've essentially, you've got two types of profiling. You've got profiling that's manually done, and then you've got automated profiling online via things like cookies and, and other technologies, to, or for example, Netflix that works out what you like based on other things you've watched. Mm. So, so absolutely, that's very much in the firing line. It's, it's, it's a very difficult question as to whether consent will be required for that profiling or whether you can rely on your legitimate interest. For example, right. recent guidance has come out saying that some online behavioral advertising you won't actually need consent for. So obviously, what you know when you visit a site and then you go to another one and you'll see an ad for the site you just visited using something like Google AdSense. Yes. But it, it's very difficult to comment on any particular circumstances for sure without sort of really having done a rigorous analysis and really a legitimate interest assessment, which we can come on to in a bit, mm. on, on whether basically your rights in, the, in conducting the profiling outweigh the individual's rights. And essentially, if there's any doubt, really, you should assume the individual's rights prevail and therefore get consent. So the idea is that consent is basically there if you... Technically, they're all meant to be valid basis for processing, but the reality is that consent is what you want to rely on generally last if you can't find another good reason for, for processing it because people can withdraw their consent at any time, which can cause you trouble potentially. So, Sure. And you mentioned um, a, a few minutes ago about something you'd like to get onto, which is um, PECR, if I've noted things, uh, things correctly. Um, what, what does that stand for and, and, and what relevance does that have in this particular subject? So that's the Privacy and Electronic Communications Regulations 2003, which have been amended several times. What they are, are the email marketing rules really for the UK. It's not just email marketing, it's telephone and text and other things that are similar, sending messages including on LinkedIn, for example, or across the platform, but basically electronic marketing, sending messages. So the, the relevance of that is that it, it, this is often the source for, for a lot of confusion when it comes to GDPR, because it, it, the way it interacts with GDPR is, is quite critical to understand. So the PECR requires that to send unsolicited marketing communications to individuals, to send marketing communications, you need consent to do that. And that's as, as opposed to companies. Um, yeah. so, so, and the other thing to mention is with email addresses, you've got company, you've got an info at company.com address, mm -hmm. but you've also got a personal name and then at company.com address. But for the purposes of PECR, they are both classified as corporates, i.e. company addresses. Sure. But, but for the purposes of GDPR, if you've got a name at a company, that's also personal data. I so, so, so it's a little bit of a complex interaction there in terms of what that means for marketing. But the key point is that when you're sending messages to individuals, and that includes sole traders, I think that's the key point, the stress, mm -hmm. you, you will need consent to send marketing communications generally unless you're relying on the soft opt-in, which, as I say, is relatively rare. But even when you're emailing corporates and you can potentially rely on legitimate interest, you've still got to conduct the legitimate interest assessment and work, out, and work out if your interest and in what you're doing actually outweighs that individual. So it's not really a free pass. You, in fact, if anything, sometimes it's easier just to get consent because you haven't got to conduct a complex analysis. Once you've got consent, you've got consent. Yeah. And you have to have a sort of spreadsheet of all this analysis you've done, which can take you know up to a day sometimes for complex analyses. Mm. 
Is, is, is it worth um, clarifying, G given what you've just said about if in doubt, obtain consent, do, obtain the consent correctly and properly, and then you'll, yeah. you, it, you'll be covered. But uh, I've just noted here, uh, and I've scribbled gray area of email addresses, because if, even if you have, let's say, for example, my first name, James at companyname.com. I work for a company, you know, if I was working for a company and I was given a company email address, is that a personal email address or is that a company email address, given that my company likely would have access to all of my email communications because it's going through their servers, they can monitor those email communications and inherently that email address belongs to that company. So even though it's specifically set up for my use, using the suffix of their domain name, it's their email address. So I suppose the question is, is in that scenario, is that personal data or is that a company email address? So well, it's actually both, you see, this is the thing. Right. So you're up to your own ownership needs to be distinguished from actual uh, personal data. So even though the email address is owned by the company, it still identifies you as an individual for the, purpose, for the purpose of GDPR. But for the purpose of PECR, it's the company's address um, for, for email marketing. So that's why it's complex, because you've got two pieces of quite tricky legislation interacting. Sure. And, you, and you've got to make sure you get that right when you're considering marketing to people. Uh, and forgive me if that, if that sort of, you know, almost re-clarifies what you just said, but this, this, this puts into perspective then uh, and perhaps makes people realise why it's so important to do what you advise them, which is, if in doubt, obtain clear, you know, proper consent for something and then you don't even have to ask that question. Yeah, absolutely. And I think one point to say now that we've seen coming up in the events industry is about passing on details of exhibitors to uh, suppliers for their marketing purposes. Now, again, this comes back to this key point that even though it's a corporate email address and in theory you can rely on legitimate interest for market to them mm -hmm. uh, because it's a corporate for the purpose of PCR, it's still personal data if, if you signed up with a personal um, sure. corporate email address. And therefore, according to the ICO's guidance, you need, you need consent to sell on people's data. So you can't just necessarily pass that on for third-party marketing purposes. Mm -hmm. that would still be considered a bit well i think too much certainly for legitimate interest i mean if you signed up for an event as an exhibitor you wouldn't necessarily well you wouldn't i don't think expect to start receiving emails from sort of random suppliers about goods and services that you may or may not require yeah so, yeah, which, so key, yeah which does happen at the moment you know i've been in a scenario where, where i've I've worked freelance for companies who are going to be exhibiting at trade shows and, you know, within a matter of, of days of, of signing the booking form and agreeing to book space at that particular trade show, you're receiving emails from every man and his dog that does stand building or graphic design, you know, asking you if you, if their services are of any use to you, seeing as you are attending this particular trade show. So quite clearly your information has been passed on by the organizers to relevant companies or harvested by these companies from, from the organizers website. Absolutely. And the thing to mention here is that the way GDPR works is that you've got to always choose the least privacy invasive means. You've got to build in privacy by design. It's now called. So right. if there's a way of achieving the same result without, uh, you know, being more, more intrusive um, in a particular way, for example, sharing the data with the suppliers, um, you know, you, you need to pursue that route. So, for example, providing a list of the suppliers when they sign up, for example, a downloadable PDF for them to contact mm -hmm. uh, would be more reasonable. 
um, or giving them the option of receiving the communications would be more reasonable. So even if you sought to rely on legitimate interest, which I think is, is very nebulous, um, I think the legitimate interest test would fail uh, because there's other ways of doing it which are less invasive. Um, uh, 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 just to turn the conversation a little bit t towards your own practices and your own experiences in recent months, are you starting to um, see a, a picture forming whereby you are able to give fairly standardised advice to people who are working in the events industry when it comes to this particular subject? Or is GDPR going to be something that is very bespoke and very much sort of tailored to, to every organisation on a case-by-case -case basis? It's a mixture of the two. I mean, a lot of it, for example, putting in place internal records of processing, that is something every organisation will have to do. The only real bespoke part comes in terms of working out what data goes on that spreadsheet. But certainly, I mean, once you've done one supplier or one organiser, generally, unless they've got different processes, the advice is going to be pretty similar. You know, they're, they're sign-up forms. There's maybe perhaps two different ways or three ways you could structure it, but really you're trying to achieve the same thing. Um, absolutely. I mean, between sectors, you see obviously a lot more variation, but with the, with the advice to one supplier and another supplier is going to be pretty similar. Mm. And, and as, a, as a data protection consultant, you will be working, I've no doubt, across many, many different industries and you will have had contact with, with many different levels of, of, of business operations. Um, uh, what is the general reaction when we do look specifically at the event industry? Um, how detailed have you gone into the consultation process with companies? I mean, do people come for basic advice and, and have you gone into real detail with anybody um, so far? We've had some pretty detailed discussions on what exactly is going to be required on a sign-up form. I think that is certainly the key issue which organisers and suppliers are, are wrestling with. Uh, we've, we've given, I think, pretty clear advice on that and provided some workarounds, which I appreciate for the, from the supplier's perspective aren't ideal. Uh, you know, the, the current practices that they're going, you know, I think are, are not allowed under current legislation. But uh, it's, it's a thorny issue because it's really a cultural shift more than anything else that's going to be required, not just for the events industry, but for, for any business, particularly those involved in marketing. You know, the GDPR is really here to, to clamp down on anything that's been going on that has been, I think, I mean, I'm trying to use the best word, but perhaps a bit iffy or any yeah. uncertainty, as you say, unambiguous. It's clarifying that, no, look, if there's any doubt, you need to be crystal clear on what you're doing with the data. Yeah. And, and, and a, a, a phrase I've used, I don't know if it's right or not, but surreptitious harvesting of or, or collection of information, you know, the, the, the sort of the, 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 the backhanded way or, or, or the sort of the slightly sneaky way of, of collecting some of that information, which we've all seen examples of, you know, we've all seen examples of tick here if you don't want to receive it. And that's something I said to somebody just, just recently, you know, it, uh, and I think the way they termed it was that um, it, when it comes to, to clear consent, it has to be, there, there can't be a negative response that you have to give. It can only have, it, it should only be a positive response. Yes, I want to receive it. Exactly right. And I think even more surreptitious than that, and what we've seen, particularly with online profiling, is when you say, oh, I agree, tick here, or, you know, I have to agree, you have to agree to the T's and C's to proceed. Mm. And then buried in the T's and C's is something saying they can do whatever they want with the data and use it for whatever purpose. That, that's exactly the sort of thing that GDPR is tackling. It's saying, no, look, you can only process the data for what you need to for the contract. If you want to do sort of bizarre things with the data apart from that, you really need to get consent, you know. Yes.
Um, now, as we, um, I suppose, as we, as we come rattling towards the end of the episode, what, what we should say is that um, as a consultant, you're well placed to help people um, with this. Um, have you set up any specific resources or what have you been involved with yourself by way of assisting businesses in, in tackling this particular headache? What we've done is we've created quite a good set of templates, uh, particularly for websites, because often you know our clients understand the importance of the website being compliant because that's what people see. Yeah. We've also got a document pack, a DIY document pack. So if you've got the time to sit down and wrestle with this stuff, then you can get through it quite cost effectively. And then beyond that, really, it's anywhere between sort of a couple of days inspections and on-site audits or distance audits to mm. a full GDPR audit, which can depending on the organization, take anywhere from a week to several months. And uh, if people want to, uh, to access that, um, I think uh, you're very welcome to give out your, uh, your website or any contact details uh, if you so wish to. Sure. Well, if you want to get in touch with me, uh, you can use my personal email, which is henry.herbert, so H-E-R-B-E-R-T, at herbertball.com. So that's Herbert again, and then B-A-L-L.com. Uh, if you want to see our privacy policy templates and, and what we think is required and it's quite detailed, uh, the website to visit is gdprprivacypolicy.org. Uh, Excellent. And, uh, and Henry is from uh, Herbert and Ball LLP. Henry is a former solicitor and a data protection consultant who has worked specifically in this area now for quite a while and, uh, and is very, very well placed to help any of our podcast listeners and watchers with any questions and uh, any uh, advice that they may need on this particular subject. And I know it's one that um, as a podcast and as a platform, Event Industry News is going to be looking at and um, not so much tackling but helping our followers and our readers to understand in the coming months as we approach may 25th which hopefully henry you'll you'll confirm is is the correct date that this comes into effect that's correct yeah Excellent. And uh, according to my diary, that's a Friday. So we'll all be, uh, you know, frantically working that week, no doubt, as the uh, clock ticks down to the 25th of May. Um, Henry, thank you very much for joining the podcast today. The podcast is brought to you by our sponsor, Engage, powered by D2I Systems, winner of Best Event Management Platform at the 2017 Event Technology Awards. To learn how Engage can make your business more profitable, visit d2isystems.com forward slash engage don't forget to stay up to date with all of the latest content from eventindustrynews.com also get in touch with us with your opinions any questions that you've got relating to gdpr as i said we are going to be looking at this as a subject on the podcast in the coming weeks and months with more episodes dedicated to this particular topic so get in touch via twitter at event news blog or via the website eventindustrynews.com henry thanks again for joining us Thanks for having me, James. It's, uh, it's been great. I uh, should point out that Henry did step in at quite short notice today, but uh, his input has been invaluable on this particular subject. So uh, our sincere thanks to him. And we'll see you all on the next episode of the podcast. Thanks very much and uh, goodbye to you all. <laughs>